thank you to everyone who's left us a scary, scary tale. I cannot wait to get into these today. I'm going to listen to them along with you, so I'm hearing them for the first time too. If you have a scary story to share, go to ghostintheburbs.com and click the tell me a story tale and then do your worst. All right, let's get right into it. Hey Liz, my name is Morgan Brasino, and I first want to start off by saying thank you so much for bringing us Ghosts in the Burbs. You have inspired me to give over, get over my intruder syndrome and help me start writing myself, so thank Yay. you. I want to tell you a story about this gorgeous Tudor-style house in Billings, Montana that is allegedly haunted. Ooh. So here we go. So this house, like I was saying, it's a gorgeous Tudor, it's yellow, it's huge. It's mm. in a historic neighborhood in Billings, Montana. But even though it's beautiful and huge, not a whole lot of people are lining up to live there because there was a murder, an unsolved murder that took place in that house. Oh. And the woman that was killed in that house wasn't found for quite some time, mainly being because in this house, there's a closet that expands the entire width of the house. You enter on one side, and it goes all the way in, and she was found at the back of the closet eventually. And no. so my brother and his wife, who are just starting off in life, needing a place that's a little bit more affordable, move in. Um, this house has been converted into two apartments, an upstairs unit and a downstairs unit. They were in the upstairs unit where the notorious closet is. Oh. So I was visiting them because I was going to school out of town at that time. We're having dinner, and of course our conversation leads to, hey, so are there any ghosts that you've seen here as? All Ghosts in the Bourbonites conversations ultimately lead to, and they both look at each other, and they go, well, yes, we have experienced paranormal activity in this house. Uh-uh. I ask, well, what's happening? And my brother's wife says, well, our dog, Hank, and Hank is this cute little black lab, he goes to that closet in the night and barks into it. And I'm like, nope. <laughs> I almost left right there. Like, oh my gosh, it's so spooky. Um, and I go, well, is that all? Is that all you experience? And my brother chimes in and says, well, you know, we just sometimes just feel really bad energy, bad female energy. And I go, oh, gosh, well, <laughs> I'm kind of looking over my shoulder like, okay, let's stop talking about this. <laughs> and so we kind of spend the rest of the night drinking wine and playing board games. And we're eventually, uh, the evening is winding down, so I need to leave. And they get up to give me a hug goodbye, and they walk me to their uh, front door. So their front door is a little different, as in um, it goes into the side of the house down a stairwell, and it goes uh, out on the side of the house. They wouldn't okay. go through the main uh, door, because the main door goes into the downstairs unit. So in this stairwell that they exit in and out of their house to, um, had these thin slats of mirror. Um, and Uh-oh. there's like a slat of mirror, and then a wall, and then a mirror, and then a wall. So when you walk down these stairs, it's almost like you're in a stop-motion movie. Um, oh. <laughs> so I'm going to leave. I give my brother and his wife a hug goodbye, and I'm walking down the stairs, and I see this woman right up against my back. And I thought, well, it's brother's wife, so I turn. Maybe I forgot something. And I turn, and she's not there. And I go, oh, well, that was weird. Maybe I'm just kind of seeing something different in the mirror. You know, they're kind of spaced out weird, so I'm just going to go. And so I go down these stairs, and I kind of see it again. I see kind of a woman right on my back. But this time I don't turn around. I, I just keep walking. Oh I just kind of more running, like, down the stairs, bracing my 
myself not to fall. <laughs> so I get in my car, I go home, and I was staying with my, my parents at the time because, again, I was living out of town. And I um, enter in really quietly because it's 2 a.m., and I know I would not hear the end of it if I woke them up that morning. Um, so I go into the bathroom quietly, and I'm brushing my teeth, and I leave the door kind of open a little bit, um, casting light into the hallway. And... <sighs> I see my parents' dog, and my parents, they have a Pomeranian Chihuahua mix, and <laughs> I kind of see, I don't really see all of him, I just see his tail wagging because he's blocked by a woman crouching over, no. kind of petting him, mm, and, no. you know, I'm like, shoot, I must have woke my mom up, uh, gosh, so I close the door, brush my teeth, kind of finish what I'm doing in the bathroom, and I go out, you know, waiting to hear the... 10th degree about where I was while I was so late and she's not there and the dog's not there and I go oh okay well huh I'm gonna just go to bed then so I get up the next morning and um my mom's cooking me breakfast and I go mom I'm sorry if I woke you up last night and she said well you didn't wake me up I'm like well yeah I did I saw you outside with your dog and she's like uh no and I was flabbergasted I'm pretty sure that whatever spirit was in that house followed me down that, those stairs, followed me to my parents' home, petted my dog, and then left. Eek! All right, thank you, Liz, so much. I hope you have a good day. Bye-bye. Oh, my God. No. <laughs> I hate everything about that. <sighs> no, thank you. Okay, on to the next. Hi, I'm Fizan, and this is a true story about me. Names have been changed. <laughs> okay, so I don't believe in ghosts. I just, I want to get that out of the way before we get started. While I might enjoy a spooky book or a scary podcast about the supernatural to safely send a chill down my spine, I'm much more wary of a masked intruder breaking <laughs> down my door at night than some ill-begotten spirit. That... That being said, I don't really have an explanation for what happened that night. Mm -hmm. So, for context, this happened like four or five years ago, back when I was a teenager. Uh, my family lives in a cozy little semi-detached house in the middle of Canadian suburbia. But a 20-minute drive with a few weird turns and you end up on a long, dark road that stretches on for miles mm -hmm. with open farmland on either side of it. Mm -hmm. Just off this road was a huge, wooden, very rustic 200-year-old house that my mom's friend from college, Hina, decided to renovate and move her family to. <sighs> Let me be clear, as nice and warm and welcoming as they made it, this house was basically made to be haunted as ghosts existed. <laughs> so anyways, this one weekend during winter break, I was spending the night at their house playing video games with Hina's son, Amir. His room was on the ground floor with a window looking out into the pitch black night. He was sitting on the bed, and I was sitting on the other side of the room next to the window. And it was the strangest thing, but I couldn't shake this feeling that someone was watching me from the outside. But there was no way for me to check since, again, we were in the countryside. There's no real light pollution. It was pitch black. I sat uncomfortably for maybe 10 minutes watching him play something on his PS4, certain that I was just like psyching myself out, when all of a sudden I felt it. On the back of my neck, I felt someone's hot, 
wet breath. It was like Ugh. like being in the line for a movie no. and then someone's standing too close to you and you can like feel it on your neck. But there's no sound, like no heavy breathing sound. I could just feel it. It was like heat and wetness and air. And before I could oh, even God. react, I felt what could only have been a hand grabbing me by the waist. <laughs> when I, I looked down, there was nothing there, but I could feel it. These like mm -hmm. thick sausagey fingers <laughs> digging into my side and it hurt. And it was trying to pull me towards the window. I screamed and pulled against it towards the bed. And then I turned and saw Amir's face, confused, staring at me. And it was like a spell had been broken. The second I saw him, the, the fingers vanished and the heat on my neck subsided. Oh. I don't know that I'm, anyone believed exactly what happened. Although I think it was just because of how scared I seemed. But regardless, I didn't sleep much at all that night. <laughs> the, the next morning I was desperate to believe that I had imagined the whole thing, but the place where the hand tried to grab me was bruised. It, uh -uh. it hurt <sighs> a lot. Something grabbed me. I didn't just slam into the <sighs> side. It was trying to pull me out of the house. Something happened in that house, and to this day, I never go into that room alone, even mm -hmm. when I visit. I have to believe there's some sort of rational explanation for what I experienced, but I certainly can't think of one. The truth is, every now and then, I wake up at like four in the morning, just the middle of the night for no reason, like bolting upright, and I'm just breathing heavily like I just woke up from a nightmare that I can't remember, <sighs> and my neck is damp, and there's always a deep soreness in my side as if the bruise was still fresh. Ugh. I don't know if that's a good story, but it happened. Yeah. And I don't know what else to say. <laughs> Thanks for your time. Okay, well, it was the thick sausage fingers <laughs> for me. Good God, that is awful. Oh my God, pulling you out of the house, sure. That's pretty bore. That's pretty horrible. All right, let's go on to our next. Uh, oh, this looks like a long one. Um, okay, here we go. Uh, uh, hi there. So, I have um, actually quite a few stories I could tell, but I'm going to go with the uh, most concrete one with the most witnesses. So. I have been in nursing for nearly 15 years now, Ooh. and this story takes place back when I was still a nursing assistant. Uh, it was my very first job, and I worked night shift on an oncology floor. And a gentleman was admitted on my first shift of the week with end-stage uh, pancreatic cancer. And I remember seeing him and he was just so, well, he didn't look that sick. And he was very much able to take care of himself. He seemed happy, um, was very, very gracious with us. And um, I don't know, it was just surprising to me. So I got him settled in and I went back to the nursing station. And I remember my charge telling me that he would be dead in a week. You know, just like that. He's going to be dead in a week. And I thought, well, 
it was strange, but it is end-stage pancreatic cancer, so I guess that's how it is. Um, the rest mm. of my week went pretty normally. Um, by my third shift, he had deteriorated a little bit, but all things considered, was still doing quite well. So I then had my four days off and went back for the following week. And my first shift of that week, I was told that the gentleman had died late that afternoon. Mm. And when I came on, his family was still saying their goodbyes. And about a week, I'm sorry, about an hour into my shift, they left. And it was my job now to prepare his body for the morgue. Uh, at this point, I'm about 22 years old, and my only <laughs> other experience with a body at all was at my grandfather's funeral when I was 10. Mm. So, uh, to be frank, I was kind of a little freaked out by the whole thing. But uh, the other nursing assistants took mercy on me and helped me out with the process as it was my first time. I'd only been working in healthcare for about a month at this point. So, you know, very new. So um, they go through the whole process with me, you know, removing his lines, his equipment, cleaning him up, putting him in a body bag, labeling the body bag, turning the thermostat down as low as it can go, and then calling the board to tell them that everything was ready for them. And so, um, Everything went pretty smoothly after that, um, at first at least. <laughs> I was cleaning up the rest of the room and uh, still entirely freaked out by everything, by the way. Mm. So the way I kept myself calm about this, well, uh, was kind of just to keep talking. So mm. here I am talking to this dead guy. Um, <laughs> I'm, I'm telling him how sorry I am for his loss of him. Um, <laughs> you know, how sorry I was about his situation, how kind he seemed, how he, mm. I hoped he was in a better place. And when I ran out of that, I just started telling him about my day. Everything was fine. Everything went according to plan. My shift went on. And so I thought that was that. Mm -hmm. About an hour or so later, maybe, his call bell from his now empty room goes off. Okay, so I will say this. Our call bells did malfunction sometimes. Um, it was obviously a coincidence, right? So I go down to his room and turn the call bell off and go back to the nursing station. About 20 minutes later, the call bell goes off again. I'm just thinking, okay, yeah, whatever. So I go down, this time I kind of take a peek into the room first, but of course there's nothing there. And I turn the call bell off, turn around, go out, make it two steps out into the hallway, the call bell goes off. Again, third time now. So I go back mm -hmm. in and I turn it off and I go back to the nursing station. Well, of course at this point, everyone's kind of laughing at the odd coincidence there. We're thinking, okay, you know, what is this even? But we all had a job to do, so we just kind of went on. Well, of course, the call bell goes off for a fourth time. And the charge tells me, you know what? Just just unplug the call bell. That'll take care of it, right? It has to. 
So I go back into the room. I unplug the call bell from the wall. They're kind of designed to do that, so it's fine. And I wrap it up. I put it on the bed and I Mm -mm. go back out again. Mm -mm. So we're there. It's kind of late at this point, you know, maybe two or so in the morning. And uh, we're doing our thing. And the call bell goes off again. My charge turns and looks at me and goes, (laughs) you did unplug it, right? (laughs) Yes, yes, I unplugged it. So I go back down there to check because, you know, it did go off and someone has to turn that bell off. Mm. And there it is, of course, sitting neatly on the bed, wrapped up right where I had left it, and the bell is still going off. So I turn it off and go back again to the nursing station. And (laughs) maybe 10 minutes later, the call bell goes off again. My charge is just like, oh, come on. You did not leave that plugged in. You just went in there how many times? I'm like, but I, I, did, I very much did do that. She goes, no, 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 I'm gonna go check. So she goes down there and she comes out of the room with the call bell in her hand and goes, this is broken. I'm putting it in the equipment closet and putting the call into maintenance. And so we're like, okay, well, at this point, not only is the call bell unplugged, it is no longer physically in the room. And the only way to make the call bell go off is to push a button on the wall. And it's not an easy one to push either. So, y'all, the call bell goes off again. And we're kind of looking at each other at this point, you know, nurses, fellow nursing assistants are charged and we're like, okay, this is weird, right? I'm kind of thinking, I go, you know, there's a really weird superstition. Sometimes maybe you need to open a window to let a soul out when somebody dies. I don't know where this even came from for me, but I'm just going with it. And the problem with this, though, is that we are on the third floor and our windows don't open. At this point, God bless her, one of our older nursing assistants who has been doing this her entire life, who is amazing, has a solution for everything, goes, I will fix this. So she marches herself down the hall and I follow with a no small amount of trepidation. And I swear, she is so regal. She is like grown by a foot. And she stands there and she goes, Sir, you have passed. You have no business here. There is nothing for you here. Now get out. And the call bell did not go off again. (laughs) Oh my God. I just have to say thank you to every single person in the hospital everywhere. Thank you to nursing assistants and nurses and doctors and everybody because holy cow, that is a lot on top of all you do for us. (laughs) Now you have to shoo us out after we die as well. So thank you. And that is really spooky. Oh my goodness. All right, let's go on to the next. I'm telling you, you guys, we haven't even made a dent in these stories. It all happened in the summer of 2010. The summer I was 13 years old. 
lucky 13. I was obsessed with ghost stories, crazed by the idea of catching a ghost on camera, of experiencing ghosts in real life. I was so brave, so cool, so collective. So I thought. Truth is, I had no idea. Zero. Zip. Not at all. No clue how a brush of the paranormal would become the ghost story I tell at parties 11 years later. Yay. No notion that a decade later I would freeze in fear of the single most terrifying, most unexplainable experience I've had in my lives. I was 13. I was a junior counselor at the Girl Scout day camp down the road from my childhood home. The home I still live in. The home I'm preparing to move out of in 43 short days. <laughs> the home in which I grew up as the youngest child. Always an older sibling around to put me in my place. As the youngest of five isn't an easy gig. <laughs> and the home I now spend hours upon hours alone in. Afraid in. Mm. Terrified of what only I have experienced. Mm. As the youngest of a large family, I was seldom alone in our house growing up. On the day of the event, the emptiness of the large home felt freeing. Every day since, emptiness has felt oppressive. I'll tell you my story, but you need to believe me. I kept it inside for years, more terrified of the idea that I wouldn't be believed than of the man who lives in that closet. Oh, God. Lives. Not lived. He is still there. What? I still hear him. Feel him. I won't go in that room alone. I haven't gone in that room alone in the past 11 years. The summer that I was 13, I was a junior camp counselor. I entertained younger girls all day playing games, singing songs, and telling ghost stories to enthrall the campers and placate the actual adults. How dare they do the job they volunteered to do? What annoyed me at 13 makes me livid at 24. Life is busy and working with kids is hard. I'm a teacher for crying out loud, of course I understand. But don't volunteer if you want nothing to do with kids. It's not a good luck. I spent that muggy July day playing and singing songs at the preschool union. I sat in a hot, sticky tent for the entire afternoon. I couldn't wait to get home and shower. Magic marker tattoos adorned my arms and all I wanted was to feel clean and take a nap. I was relieved when my dad picked me up from camp. He dropped me off at home with simple instructions. You're home alone. Check that every door and window is locked. I followed his instructions. I even locked myself in my parents' master bedroom after I locked myself in the house. The room had the better shower. Much nicer and cleaner than the one I shared with my siblings. <laughs> I was emphatic to use our shower without a fight or a line with my siblings. This is where time slows down. This is where I remember every painstakingly slow second. I remember every detail. I can still feel how the shampoo stung in my eyes and the light, tropical fruit and apple mixture scent of my Garnier Fruity shampoo <laughs> as I lathered it through my hair. I remember how it felt as my heart stopped. This was the day I learned what it meant when blood ran cold. As steam rose off my skin, I stood there, shivering, terrified. There was a man in my parents' closet, and he was watching me, oh. 13 years old, bathing. Oh. I stopped breathing as my eyes met his. Oh, no. I had leaned out of the shower to dry my face to get the shampoo out of my eyes. I hadn't felt him watching me until the safety until I left the safety of the shower stall. Once out. 
All I felt was the weight of his eyes scrutinizing me. He wasn't so much looking at me as looking into me, looking Fucker. through me. In that moment, he gazed in the depths of my soul and all I could do was stare back. I was panicking, but I knew panic wasn't going to save me from the man with these rage-filled eyes. I continued to stare at him, meeting his gaze and refusing to be the first to break eye contact. Goosebumps rose on my arms as I stood half-hanging from the streaming water on the humid July day. He was playing the same game, refusing to blink or glance away for even a second. I was 13. He was easily 65. He could have overpowered me in a moment, but I couldn't just stand there, waiting for him to attack me. I did the only thing I could think to do. I blindly reached into the shower to turn off the water, not daring to take my eyes off him for even a millisecond. I slowly knelt down to collect my clothes. I wrapped my body in the towel I used to wipe the shampoo from my eyes. The next part was the hardest. I had to walk closer to him in order to get out of the bedroom. There was no way out. There was no way to protect myself from this man unless I walked right up to him, close enough for him to reach out and to grab me. I'm not sure a 13-year-old me got the courage. It's something that I sorely lack in my young adult years, but I walked toward him. I got closer to the man who was watching me bathe at 13 years old when I was home alone in a locked room in a locked house. He didn't grab me. He didn't move anything save for his eyes. His eyes followed me, tracked me, never left my own. In the minutes this encounter took place, I never once broke eye contact. Neither did he. He just watched me as I walked closer and then backed away through the door I had to unlock to escape through. What the fuck? Upon entering the safety of the hallway, I ran to my brother's room. My bedroom had no lock, no safety. I was alone. The only phone was in the kitchen downstairs, but I was terrified I wouldn't make it there on time. I was terrified that by the time I called for help and help arrived, the man in the closet, in the locked room, in the locked house, would be gone. I simply knew it. I knew he would be gone before anyone could come to help me. He was real, but he would be gone. How does a 13-year-old deal with that knowledge? Years passed, though I never mentioned anything. There was no one alive in the house that day. My dad had to use his key to unlock the front door. The back door was still locked, as were the windows. No one alive entered or left that house when I was alone. Whoever, whatever was in that closet, was there before I even locked the door. I hear him still, though I haven't seen him since. My sister hears him too. Heavy footsteps pacing overhead of the family room, just in the back corner just in the area that is our parents' bedroom closet. I notice that when I speak of him, these sounds happen more often. He knows I speak. He knows that I know that he is still there. I hear him too, always when I've been alone, which is quite frequent as being the last kid at home. I hear him speaking, but what he's saying is always just out of reach. He never talks quite loud enough never enunciates quite enough for me to hear the words that are being said. Him talking isn't what scares me. What scares me is that there's a second voice. (laughs) Who the hell is this second voice? I move out of this house in 43 days. I pray to God that he, it, whatever, doesn't follow me when I leave. 
motherfucker. Sage, sage, sage. That's all I have to say. That was really scary and disturbing. Jesus Christ. All right, I don't know. Do you guys want to do another? We'll do one more, I guess. But that was very scary. Okay, here's a short one. Actually, I think I know this person. I can see the start of it. I think this is Debbie. Let's play. Hi, Liz. It's Debbie from Los Angeles. I have a spooky story <laughs> for you. It was the summer between sixth and seventh grade, and uh, I was taking a summer school class, and I met a couple of girls from a different elementary school, and the three of us became really fast friends, as you do when you're in the summer between sixth and seventh grade. And there was a new girl in the class uh, about three weeks in, and she was really weird. In fact, we thought that she might might have been a witch. And we decided to go to the local public library to check out books on witchcraft and witches to see if we identify her as one. So I got, the book that I got was really thick. It was like 500 pages. It was really thick. And um, I uh, took it out and I put it on the bike rack of my Schwinn bicycle, the kind that has like the arm clamp that goes up and then you put the book on the, on the rack. And then you close it. Anyway, I ride my bike all the way home, probably about 15 blocks. And I get home, and there's no book there. I thought it was so weird, and I was oh. kind of upset because I knew I was going to have to pay for it if I couldn't find it. So I got back on my bike and retraced my, my path back to the library. I stopped on every corner. I was looking in gutters. I was looking in shrubbery. I was looking everywhere. I could not find it. Get back to the library, and I walk in and talk to the lady that had checked the book out for me, and I said, I think I lost the book. And she said, well, what book was it? And I told her it was this book about witchcraft, and she's looking through the cards, because this is back before computers, and there was no card there. And there was no evidence that that book ever existed. <laughs> so strange, and I just remember thinking how weird it was. So I get back to my house, and I call my friends. I'm like, do you remember this book? They're like, yeah, we saw you put the book in your bike rack. This is crazy. So, about a month later, I went back to the library to see if that book had ever been turned in or if there was any record. Still no record of the book. She'd never heard of it before. There was no record of it. So, I forgot about it. So, 25 years goes by and my parents were moving out of their house and they had saved a box of my stuff, you know, from high school and junior high, yearbooks and trophies, whatever. And I go there, and my mom hands me this box, and I open it. I'm going through it. Uh -uh. Just memories, you know, nostalgia. And at the very bottom of that box, there was that book. No. The book on witchcraft. <laughs> I could not believe it. And uh, I still can't believe it as I'm telling you this story. Um, I don't even know where that book is. I think it freaked, I got so freaked out that I threw it away. I don't no. really want to know anything about it. It just is so <laughs> odd. Anyway, that's my story. Thanks. Love your show. Bye. Oh, I love a haunted book. That is awesome. Thank you, Debbie. I just want everyone to know that if you come across a haunted book, I want it. I know that's crazy, but I want it. Um, thank you, guys. This is a good place to stop. Again, we haven't even made a dent in these stories, so I'm just going to keep putting these out every other week.
I'll meet you back here next Friday for a new Ghost in the Verb story. And if you can believe it, it's going to be episode 100. Until then, watch Malignant, read The Dark by Jeremy Robinson, and listen to Guide to the Unknown podcast. See you soon.